And we are talking about shrimp, but we're talking about shrimp done very differently. We're talking about lab-grown seafood. Just how exactly is it made? And could it really be the key to helping our oceans and our fish populations? Uh, joining me to talk about it is is a founder of Wild Type. Justin Kolbeck is joining the show. Justin, good evening. Thanks so much for making the time. Hi, Chelsea. Awesome to be here. Hard to follow that that intro quote. <laughs> well, we do all love shrimp, right? So I wonder, though, if right, George yeah. Costanza would have loved it as much if it was lab-grown shrimp. So let's talk about what exactly that means, Justin. When we're talking about lab-grown seafood, what are we really talking about? Can you help to define define that? I'm sure that you had to do this once or twice. <laughs> sure. Yeah, my pleasure. So the the term we like to use is cultivated seafood. And the reason we, we like that term is because I think it describes really well the very highly controlled conditions in which we make these seafood products. And I'll explain how they work, hopefully very simply. And if you have questions, we can get into it, of course. But the, the basic idea is we start with cells that come from a fish. And in our case, it's Pacific salmon. Actually, uh, some came from Canada initially and some from uh, the Pacific Northwest in the United States. Um, and if you find the right kind of cells, and the particular ones that we work with um, are stem cell-like, they're kind of like a starter yeast when you're baking, right? Your granny can sort of pass you down the thing, and it's been going for a number of decades, and you can also get your sourdough bread going with it. The same thing kind of works for these cells. If you find the right kind, they can keep growing and growing and growing. And essentially what we do is we brew these cells in a stainless steel tank, once they get to you know, a high enough density, we concentrate them down and we put them on a, a plant-based guide that basically tells the cells what to do and helps them organize and structure themselves into the kinds of cuts uh, for the products we're making. And we uh, at WildType are focused on what we call a salmon saku. So it's that um, sort of cut of a fish that you see behind an omakase counter uh, when you go to a sushi restaurant. So, wow. you know, instead of getting your favorite Atlantic farmed Atlantic salmon, let's say from Norway, um, you could have wild type salmon from Vancouver. I mean, to imagine that this is sushi grade fish, I think just really speaks to the caliber of what it is that you're able to create. I, a lot of people, I think, and myself included, you know, can wrap their head around plant-based products, but there's a question of whether or not they can really emulate the taste and the texture of the product that they're trying to to sort of mirror. It sounds like you, you're touching on something that's that's different than that. Can you clarify how this is different than a plant-based product? Yeah, of course. So the, the main difference is our products, uh, I guess, aren't vegetarian because they have salmon in them. Sure. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it does have some plants because we use that, to, you know, as the sort of structural guide, so to speak. Um, but it is, you know, it is real salmon. And if you kind of compare the DNA that's in our salmon to the one from the, you know, fish down the, in, the, in the river down the street, it'll be exactly the same. Um, so this is a different thing. And, and I think, you know, I'm grateful you're asking these questions because a lot of people, including my own mom, when I first told her about this, was like, how does that work? Because <laughs> um, because it, it is pretty crazy if you think about it. Right. Like, um, and, you know, and I should say this is it's going to take time for these things to really be a perfect exact replica of what nature can produce. Sure. But I think a cell is programmed to do what we need it to do. Right. And in the case of fish, that means turning into muscle and creating these sort of like nicely 
balanced bites with lots of fibrousness that you just really can't get out of plants typically. Well, and the reason I bring up the question about the comparison to to a plant-based product is because I think ethically, if for, for people that would, would define themselves as ethical vegans or vegetarians, I mean, this would sort of open the door to whether they would be able to to eat this with a clear conscience. This is not something that you've taken from the ocean and alive and then killed <laughs> you're you're creating it so yeah. I, ethically i think this is sort of a a gray area how do you how do you speak to that when you get questions about that it's a great question and in a, in a way you know somebody should probably be teaching like an ethics philosophy class at the university on this on this very subject <laughs> and, and if you ask i mean if you ask the people who work with us here at wild type you'll get a range right so there are people who've chosen to eat no meat or less meat, let's say, for ethical reasons, like you're mentioning, whether it's, you know, the environmental footprint of meat and seafood, animal welfare concerns, you name it, right? Um, in the case of seafood, sometimes people just don't love to eat it because it's got a bunch of stuff in it that we don't love, like mercury and microplastics and parasites, right, et cetera. So I mean, even just when we kind of have our own people do tastings, there, there are a number of people that just didn't grow up in places that ate meat or seafood, so they have no appetite for a product, interestingly, even though they're mm-hmm. super passionate about the mission that we're working on. But I'd say the vast majority of people, at least you know, here in the environment that we live in on the West Coast of the U.S., are really interested in this product because, you know, it, it this does solve for a lot of the reasons that people have opted to eat no meat or seafood or eat less. And then, as you mentioned, I mean, that's only one component of it. Then there's how this could help our our oceans and our fish populations and the environmental impact of doing something like this. I mean, I would imagine that the change that you could incite in that area would be limitless. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I can give you some numbers to put this in perspective. So let's put aside all of the current consumption. Let's just think about where the fish is going to come from in the future that we need to eat by the end of this decade. So the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN projects something like north of 20 to 25 million additional tons per year of seafood that need to be produced to meet global demand. And to put that into perspective, yeah, put that into perspective. So the world's tallest building is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. This would be more than the mass of 50 of those buildings. So just to imagine how much fish we're talking about here. And so 50 of those a year? You, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so oh, okay. uh, when, 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 like, where's that going to come from? It's not like our oceans have more slack in them in terms of wild fish populations, right? Those have been pretty steadily declining across most categories of fish for the last 50 years, certainly, and then very acutely in the last couple of decades. And then when you think about fish farming, you know, there are real challenges there, too, because at least in the case of salmon, there are only so many coastlines where you can farm fish. And if anything, the available coastlines are closing down for a number of reasons, some related to climate change, some related to recent legislation. Like in the state of Washington, for example, there was just a a law passed preventing Mm -hmm. the farming of fin fish in the entire state, which, as you might appreciate, previously was a big producer of salmon. So when you when you combine the sort of growth of consumption with a restriction in supply, the, the problem, of course, is that prices will continue to rise and mm-hmm. this very nutritious food will become further and further out of reach for more of us. And, and that's really what we're trying to do here is at least play a part in meeting that future demand sustainably. 
So what does it look like when it comes to the scalability of your company? And, and is this industry even regulated yet? I mean, what does the future look like when it comes to being able to provide some of that supply? I can speak to the U.S. point of view because that's the one that I know best. And, you know, we're, we're a U.S. company predominantly focused on the U.S. market. But, you know, Canada is certainly um, on the very close list for, for next markets. So the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is the uh, regulator for fish um, and most seafood, with the exception of catfish, randomly, and I won't bore you with why that's the case today. <laughs> a good story behind that. Um, but the, the, the conversation we've had going with FDA has spanned four years now, and we've exchanged lots of information with them. I think they're starting to feel very comfortable. So you know, soon we will be on the other side of the, the regulatory review process. And then it really comes to scaling up, you know, and, and, and I think one of the things that gets talked about a lot in the press is like, oh, you know, cell culture, seafood and meat is coming along and it's going to like completely take over everything. But like when you think about the volumes associated with meat and seafood production, it's more than 350 uh, million tons per year between meat and seafood. I mean, it's just like it's like trying to imagine the number of stars in the universe, right? It's just like an astronomically huge number. And, you know, there's absolutely no way that we're going to, you know, even take 5% of that uh, in, in, in the next few years. But I think as, you know, the, the rest of this decade rolls out and, you know, coming decades, I think we can hopefully be part of the solution that I was talking about in the future. And so what we're focused on right now is, taking something that works really well at small scale made by, I would say, very skilled hands and trying to replicate that in a way that produces a high quality, you know, sushi, sushi saku every single time. And so, you know, it's actually kind of an exciting moment because we've gone from living in the realm of like future science fiction land into mm-hmm. sort of manufacturability, if that's even a word, um, of this kind of new technology and, and the growing pains of, of scaling that up. So, that's really the, the moment that we're in uh, right now, and it's it's a challenging and daunting one, and it's going to take a couple decades, really, to come to fruition. So, Justin, how do you begin to chip away at the stigma or the nervousness around this when people sort of go, when it comes to lab-grown food in general? Yeah, certainly. I mean, every everything new uh, often gets people to pause, at least, for a beat and think about it, right? And for something like this that you're eating, it's maybe maybe more than a beat. Um, I, you know, I think the way that we've thought about it is, you know, a little bit of an exchange. Like, I, I don't think anybody's really excited about all of the baggage that seafood comes along with. And I can just give you an example, right? So my, my wife, when our, after our, our twins were born, the first meal she wanted to have was sushi, right? Fish. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I, I guess that's not super uncommon. And, you know, the, the reason is, like, a lot of people who are in sensitive health conditions – expecting moms, young kids can are advised to only eat so much seafood because of you know, the stuff that comes along with it. So that to us felt like a problem worth solving because on one hand, you've got this super nutritious animal protein that nature provides. But on the other hand, unfortunately, you know, our species has populated the environment in which these fish live. And so we have to live with the consequences of that pollution. And so, I, you know, I think in the early days, the way that we think about it is a little bit of a trade-off, right? So work with us on some new way of production. And in return, you get literally the the purest, most pristine seafood you can find anywhere, not to mention the freshest, right? So if you've ever been sitting next to that person on an airplane and they like pop open a can of tuna, you're like, ooh, you know, like maybe 
Maybe don't do that here. Um, you know, like our fish is just so much fresher than that, right? You don't have this sort of like old funky flavor. And so I, I think that's how we do it. But ultimately, I think it's just going to be time, right? People trying this new thing, um, talking about it, realizing that it's actually not that crazy of an idea. Yeah, and I'm glad to have you clarify that to talk about the freshness because I think that there's something that exists for a lot of people in their minds. When you hear lab-grown, you think you sort of relate it to, to to GMO. You think, oh, there's there's chemicals in this food or it's completely manufactured, it's processed. And that's really not what it is that you're creating. I, I'm curious because this is something that it, it's, it really is a breakthrough, I think, in so many ways. But this hasn't happened overnight, Justin. So what makes you passionate about this? What makes you passionate to have gotten to where you are with wild type and to really continue on? You know, for me, it's it's interesting. It's It's been an evolving passion, I, ha- I have to admit. You know, when, when we started, the thing, and, and then still I, I care deeply about, is is food security. I, I spent a couple years of my previous career in, in the U.S. Foreign Service, and I worked in a place called Peshawar, Pakistan, and then later in a, in a place in Afghanistan called Paktika Province, which is one of the most food insecure places in the world. And when you see people every single day who don't have enough to eat, you think about food differently, right? And combining that with a lot of research I had been doing at the time on like our food system, it was clear to me that our entire species is eventually going to have to grapple with some of these kind of systemic worldwide uh, food insecurity issues if we're not careful with, with our planet. And then, you know, as the years have gone by, you know, we started the company in the latter part of 2016. So we've been at this now for a while on on the R&D front. I I think I've just really come to appreciate the power and the impact of salmon in particular in their environment. And if you, I live in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. And if you live in that part of the country, you know, certainly it's true in British Columbia, you cannot separate salmon from the culture there, right? Not just First Nation indigenous people and their kinship with this animal, but that species feeds bears and the redwood trees and eagles, right? It's like intimately linked with this beautiful place that we call home. And you cannot think about protecting the world's wild places without protecting some of these things. And, you know, we're, we're pushing, unfortunately, species like this to the brink of extinction. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if you were following the news, but a few years ago, you know, there was uh, the, the Southern resident um, killer whale uh, up in, the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, a few of them had been dying off and most people have been pointing to overfishing of Chinook salmon, which is their main mm-hmm. diet source. And all throughout the Seattle area, people started pulling that fish off of menus and restaurants and off the shelves and grocery stores. So, I, you know, I think there's this, this new awareness about how actually interconnected our ecosystem is. And you start messing with little things and suddenly our oceans, which store 93% of the planet's carbon, may not work as our ocean's refrigerators anymore. And that's a really scary thought. What a groundbreaking area to be a part of. And Justin, I think you put it so eloquently. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for making the time and for explaining what it is that you're doing with wild type uh, and the passion that drives it. Really appreciate the conversation tonight. Thanks, Chelsea. Awesome to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Take care.